0: Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. So it was about 10 years ago that I got the worst sore throat of my life. I mean, it just hurt to swallow. When I swallowed, tears would come to my eyes, and I went to the doctor because I— In my family, you know, I had a dad that was like, if he was in the middle of a seizure, he'd say, how are you doing? Great. So we kind of ignored our pain. And so it had to be really, really bad to send me to the doctor, but it was that bad. And I'm just one of those people that I rarely even visit the doctor, or I did until the last two years. But I remember going there, and she looks at me, and she's like, she's young. Like, so what's your problem? And I'm like, "Uh, my throat really hurts. You might just have to suffer. And I said, thank you. She got her swab and she swabs it. And she's like, I'm not saying anything. She puts it in the little Petri dish and like, you know. Okay, goodbye. And so I leave. And I'm mad. I'm like... Why do I even, you know, bother? And I go home, and I write a note to Brian and to the family that says, I will not be speaking to any of you for the next three days. And I did what my father would do. I got my father's favorite panacea, grape juice. Welsh's grape juice. My dad felt like that could cure everything. I got a big old, in fact, I got a couple bottles of grape juice. And I said, I'm, you know, in my note, I'm not doing anything but drinking this grape juice and not talking to anybody. And for three days, and you've got to understand, this is hard for me not to talk. (laughs) So that was a Thursday. So all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, I didn't talk, and I just guzzled grape juice. No food, just grape juice. I don't know that I'd recommend it, but that's what I did. So by Monday, I was feeling better. By Tuesday, I was fine. And that's when I got the call back from the doctor, doctor's office. Like she was a little busy. And she's, and they said, um, Mrs. Brodersen, you have strep throat. And so we want to recommend these antibiotics that you take. And I said, um, I don't need them. I'm all better. I am self-cured and I don't need the antibiotics. And they're like, no, no. The doctor said she wants you to have these antibiotics. I said, I don't want the antibiotics. I said, You see, when I was at the doctor's office, she told me I was just going to have to suffer. So I have been suffering all weekend, and now I'm fine, and I'm not taking antibiotics. And they said, well, we're going to go check with her. So they go and check with her, and they come back, and they said, "Uh," she said, if you don't want the antibiotics, you don't have to take them. And so I did not take them. But you know, in life, that's, That's the bad news. You're just going to have to suffer. That's the truth of life. You're just going to have to suffer. You know, I was diagnosed with Meniere's disease. And so I'm like, and and what do I do? You know, to the doctor, after all these hearing tests, he goes, well, I could give you a diuretic. I'm like, no, like, let's get this fixed. There's no cure for it. Uh, Sometimes it goes away, sometimes... In other words, you're just going to have to suffer. So I went to another doctor and did another battery of tests. And we're sitting in her office. She's looking across from me. And I said, so, what are we going to do? She's like, I don't know. There's really nothing we can do. You're just going to have to suffer. You know what's really sad is my daughter, my oldest daughter, when she was coming down the grapevine, her right eardrum burst, and it's, it's still shredded. She needs to get something done, but she hasn't yet. And so I'm telling her all about this and how I have tendonitis constantly. And this, uh, When people speak to me, um, when I talk, I hear myself in my ear. It, it's, you know, and it can cause dizziness, all this weird stuff. And so I'm telling her this, and she's like, Mom, you'll get used to it. All of a sudden, I realized she's been suffering with this year after year after year after year you know in life again we're just going to have to suffer it's it's the bad news especially as you get older you're gonna really have to suffer (laughs) but people have such interesting reactions to suffering especially here in the west Something that suffering is somehow to be blamed on the sufferer. What did you do wrong? What have you done wrong? You know, I'm like I never even went to a rock and roll concert. Just the Saturday night concerts here, you know. But what what did you do wrong that brings this suffering into your life? I think about Paul, the apostle, when he was on the island of Malta. And he was gathering sticks. And one of the sticks, a viper came out of him, wrapped its arm around Paul's wrist. And all the people thought, oh, he must be a really, really bad person because look at that snake. And now it's coming back. You know, kind of the karma idea, right? It's coming back to him. But Paul just took it and shook it off into the fire. And then they watched him, and when nothing had happened to him, they decided he was a god because nothing happened to him. But see, that was their idea, and that's a very Middle Eastern idea. It's called fatalism about suffering, that you somehow brought this on yourself. Some people do all they can to disassociate from suffering. They don't visit, or they, they're like, um... How have you been eating? What was your diet like? Because what you know, whatever you did, they're not going to do because they don't want what you're going through. Have you ever had that? You know, well, did you eat hot dogs? I've heard that hot dogs, you know. Did you get the vaccination? I've heard. Actually, I think it might have to do with the vaccine. That's just between you and me. But they begin to distance themselves from any suffering. Others try to avoid it altogether. They deny it. I'll never forget when my dad was having these seizures from pain. And I said, Dad, are you okay?" He was in the hospital. And he told them, after back surgery, I won't need pain medication. (laughs) So I'm in there. He's coming out of the anesthesia, whatever that stuff is. He's coming out of it. And I see his eyes begin to roll back. This is my dad. And he begins to kind of shake and he's looking at me and I'm like, are you in pain? He's like, I said, you want me to get the nurse? So I run out and I get the nurse and she comes in. And so I look at my dad, and I'm like, "When well, she comes in and asks you how you are. Do not say great. It's like the only time I talk tough to my dad, do not say great. Cause I know him. That's exactly what he would do. So she comes in, she said, how are you doing? And he looks at me. I said, he's in pain. And she said, "Do you want pain medication?" And he's like, <laughs> "He just—he would always be in denial about his pain." I'll tell you one more story. This is not my notes. This is a freebie. <laughs> Brian and I bought this fixer-upper house in Huntington Beach, and it had a pool. It was green when we bought it, but we had a friend, and he turned it back to clear the water. Frogs were coming out of it, but we got this house. It was the days, the times when you could get a house for $90,000, yes. So, but it had no doors inside because they torn it off and it didn't have a kitchen. And I could tell you more, but I won't. But anyway, so we come over. My dad kept sneaking over and doing things at the house, fixing it up and doing just my sweet dad things. And we go over there and we see a trail of blood from his car we're seeing these droplets of blood. And we're following the droplets of blood around, and I get to the back, and my dad has taken his um, shirt off, his T-shirt off, and wrapped it around his head in a tourniquet. Now, I don't know anyone who does a tourniquet on their head, except for my father. Now, he had a pickaxe that he was doing the concrete with, and in one of those moves, he would come back and had gone in his head This is my father. He pulls it out, goes to the car to see if he can find something. When he can't, he pulls off his T-shirt, wraps it around in a tourniquet, goes back, and it's going to finish the job. He ended up with this great big, like, um, scab on his head, and everyone thought he was imitating Gorbachev. (laughs) But, you know, it's that he was in denial of it. It wasn't that it didn't hurt. He was just always in denial of it. Others run from it. You know, if I don't acknowledge it, I won't feel it. Others run from it. Others numb it with drugs, alcohol, adrenaline rushes, or busyness. But the truth is, no one can escape suffering. No one. There's a myriad of ways we suffer. Emotional suffering. Emotional. You have the only way to not suffer emotionally is to never love. If you never love anyone, if you never invest your heart in anyone, if you never have a dog, you'll never go through emotional suffering. Physical suffering, if you never do anything fun, if you never live life, you'll still have physical suffering. <laughs> Mental suffering, That, that the loss, if you, if you never give yourself, you will still have suffering. It's inevitable. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, if you live on planet Earth, you will suffer. And although Jesus does not always alleviate or heal our suffering, he does compensate our suffering. He does comfort us in our suffering he does know and understand and enter in with us in our suffering he does reward our suffering he does associate with our suffering he does speak into our suffering as c.s. lewis said god whispers to us but when we're suffering he shouts to us and he uses our suffering Uh, going back to my dad I remember him saying you know I've gotten to meet a lot of people this way and a lot of nurses and I've got to share the gospel through this path of suffering and I remember I used to go with him to his chemotherapy sessions And you've never met a more open audience to the gospel than in that room while those patients are waiting for chemotherapy. God didn't alleviate it, but he entered it, and he gave purpose to it. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 18, we see that Paul wrote to Timothy, lightly touching on suffering, and that's what we'll be talking about this morning. Paul talks about his own suffering, the purpose and blessing in suffering, and what he did in this suffering. Paul suffered in a myriad of ways. He suffered emotionally. In 2 Timothy 1.8, we see that Timothy was pulling away from Paul. So Paul wrote, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. Association with Paul could put Timothy on Rome's radar. He would lose freedoms from his association with Paul. Also, Paul was condemned to death. And there is this tendency to want to shield oneself from the pain of loss. That when we know someone is dying, the usual response is to begin to distance our affections and our heart from them. I know that a lot of um, people, their biggest complaint when they've got a cancer diagnosis and they're dying, is that no one wants to visit them anymore. All their friends kind of back away. And it's natural. You're shielding yourself from the pain of not seeing that person. You want to get used to life without that person in it. Because we have to become independent of them in order to survive. Timothy had a laundry list from Paul of the things he was supposed to do in the church of Ephesus, and now Paul wasn't going to be there to check up on him and to come and visit and to instruct him. It hurts to watch someone suffer. Earlier, Paul said, I want you to come and see me. It will bring me so much joy, but I am mindful of your tears. I know this is going to hurt. Because it hurts to watch someone suffer, it killed me to watch my dad in pain. he had always been my hero, my tough guy, remember the guy with the pickaxe in his head, and I remember when he got um, a tumor on his sternum, when it had, the tumor jumped out of the lung, and now there was another one on his sternum and I said to him, "What's your pain level?" Now this is my dad who always said, "Great." I said, what's your pain level? And he looked at me and he said, unbearable. Everything had been bearable to my dad. But now here was something that was unbearable. And I remember it hurt so deeply in a way I had never been hurt. It's like when your child is hurting or sick, that, that pain. I remember watching my dad in excruciating pain when they drained the fluid that accumulated in his, in his lung. And I mean, it was like a gallon of fluid and he would stand there and he would grasp onto the, the seat that he was holding and he would do these deep breaths and they would insert this huge needle and they would aspirate all that fluid. It was over a gallon of fluid. And as he did, the lung would begin to collapse which I've heard is one of the most painful things in the world. And I would try to, like, make him smile, but I realized, Cheryl, shut up and pray. (laughs) He's in pain, and it hurt. And yet, my father would call me every time he had that appointment and say, I need a ride. (laughs) You're like, you've got four children. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard, that emotional pain. It was hard for Timothy to associate with Paul because Paul was in prison. That was a suffering in itself. Paul was chained. Paul was condemned. Paul was hurting. Paul had been like a father to Timothy, his teacher, his mentor, his guide, Paul heard the voice of God so clearly. Timothy could be on autopilot. You know, I think a lot of people had their Christianity through Chuck Smith. And when Chuck died, their faith died. You could be on autopilot. You could just follow Paul's lead, Paul's advice, Paul's instruction. You didn't have to go, is this the voice of the Lord? Or is this what I ate last night? Is this really a vision from the Lord or am I doing this to myself? Paul could tell you, that's the Lord. That's not the Lord. That is a vision. That's not a vision. You know what I mean? Don't, don't you, you want somebody that you can talk to and say, is this? And when Paul was dying, Timothy was losing all of that. He would have to hear the voice of the Lord for himself. And he would have to stir up the gifts. See, as long as Paul was around, Timothy didn't have to stir up his gifts. He could let them be latent because Paul could do it. Paul could do everything. But now, Timothy would have to stir up those gifts and he'd have to put faith in those gifts that God had given him. I believe Paul felt the pain of Timothy pulling away from him. This was his son in the faith. This was his close ally. In Philippians 2, 20, Paul says, For I have no one else like-minded, speaking of Timothy, who will genuinely care about your interests. I'll seek their own interests not those of Jesus Christ, but you know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Paul knew the pain of feeling like he was losing someone emotionally. Paul knew physical suffering after all, he was in prison and in chains, and it wasn't even like our prisons, which are not the past, right? I mean, it's not like you're going to the, you know, five-star hotel, it's prison. But our prisons compared to what he was in, the Mamertine prison, I was there um, in Rome. I can't remember the year, please don't ask me. Somewhere in the 90s, 1999. And I remember going to the Mamertine prison and it, it's like a, you, you climb down a ladder into this cave. And they used to just throw the straw and the food down to the prisoners. That's where Paul was. That's suffering. I mean, we won't go into it, but we're women. You can imagine. No flushing toilets down there. He knew physical suffering. Previously, for the gospel's sake, he had been beaten, whipped, shipwrecked, run out of town, stoned, just to name a few of his sufferings. He mentions a constant physical ailment in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He calls it a thorn in the flesh, a demon. It was agonizing. It was weakening. Paul knew physical suffering. Paul knew mental suffering. There is a certain shame in suffering. I belong to this cohort, and I remember the teacher was asking me, so Cheryl, I heard you were in the hospital. What's going on with you? So I, you know, yeah, I was there. And so he asked me to explain a little bit. Well, after that, this this one guy was like, I hope Cheryl's not going to tell us about her time in the hospital again. And he kept posting these things on the side, and I'm like, I'm not even talking anymore. And I felt like I'm the oldest... I'm the second oldest person in this cohort. I am the oldest woman by far in this cohort. I mean, they could all be my daughters. And, and so he kept like, I don't know, it was like I felt humiliated enough that I had to go to the hospital. You know, going to the hospital is, is humiliating. They give you those little robes that you have to make sure that they don't split in the back, right? And you got that, you know, I called it Norman, but that, you know, where all your fluids are coming into your body that... I don't know what you call those. Somebody who's in nursing knows. But you know those poles that you have to take with you everywhere. You know, Norman had to go in the bathroom with me. When I walked, Norman had to go with me. And you know, it was humiliating because I felt less than the rest of the class. They're all young. They're all vibrant. They're all healthy. And there's a certain humiliation and embarrassment in being different than everybody else. In having your body break down You who've had this, don't you know it? There's just a certain... I remember when I used to lose my voice as a young mom, and the kids just would ignore me. There's a certain humiliation in that, like, you don't matter anymore because we can't hear you. (laughs) But there's a certain humiliation that comes with suffering. It separates you from others. It restricts you from doing what others can do. Um... There is then the mental suffering of being in prison, the shame of being in prison or having a record or like even getting a ticket. I feel such shame when I get a ticket. Like, I got a ticket. I was speeding. I'm a speeder. Or, you know, I made an illegal U-turn. That was me. I'm an illegal U-turner. I've done it. I saw the sign. You know, there's this shame until you pay that debt. Then there's the shame of being publicly tried and humiliated. Everything being out there, all the lies being shouted out and knowing that some people are actually believing those lies. So Paul had Phygelus and Hermogenes lying about him, but he also had the lies in court. There was a prosecutor who was accusing Paul of of stirring up riots, of of actually in those days they believed that when Christians, when they took communion, were actually uh, doing real sacrifices, drinking blood and eating flesh. Paul knew the separation, the humiliation of chains and imprisonment, and he walked among criminals as one of them. He mentions in verse 15 that all in Asia had turned from him. Rejection hurts, especially the more you've invested in others, the more it hurts. Like, you would really believe that about me? I thought we were friends. You really would believe that about me? It hurts deeply to be maligned and slandered, especially by those who are supposed to represent the love of Jesus. And remember, these were those in Asia. Paul had gone in Asia. Paul had suffered to go to Asia and to bring them the gospel. Paul had invested his life in them. They would not have heard the gospel or known the gospel without Paul. And now... They're turning from him. And Phygellus and Hermogenes seem to be foremost in this. Perhaps they did it on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook. Who knows how they did it? Maybe they went from church to church slandering. But Paul knew that type of suffering. Whatever the case, Phygellus. And Hermogenes' rhetoric had been so persuasive and so damaging that the majority of the churches Paul founded, established, and ministered to in Asia turned away from him, with the exception of Anisiphorus. Paul knew the suffering of loss. In Philippians 3.8, he said, Because of him, speaking of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things. He had lost his reputation, he had lost his status among the Pharisees, and now he was losing his status among those in the church of Asia. He felt the loss. Remember in the, in the previous, uh, he, he will say at the end of 2 Timothy, when you come to me, bring my jacket or bring my cloak and bring me some parchments. He knew the loss. Paul's unique perspective on suffering. When it comes to suffering, Paul, we're going to start with the negatives, does not numb it, doesn't ignore it, doesn't deny that it's there. He does not condemn it, does not blame it all on the devil or on a particular action or attitude that he had that was wrong. And he does not promise alleviation on earth. Throughout this epistle, he said, my death is imminent. I know that where this is going. But Paul does give it a purpose. It's for the gospel. He centers his suffering on Jesus. It's worth it because the gospel is God's power and salvation. It's worth it because it will be rewarded. It will be compensated in heaven. Romans 8.18 says that our suffering on earth is not comparable to what God is going to give us in heaven. I think that there's going to be this special time, we're told that twice, once in Isaiah and once in Revelation, that God will wipe all the tears from our eyes. I think we're going to have this special time when we cry it all out. You know, we as women, we have to cry it out. Men say, don't cry. You're like, are you kidding? I need this. I have to do it. In fact, they say that having a good cry is actually healthy for you. So men say, don't cry. Jesus will say, go ahead and cry. Tell me all about it. And as they do, he goes, oh, you went through that. Here's this reward, like you do with a little child. Oh, you poor thing, you went through that. Let's go to Toys R Us and buy it out. He's going to compensate us. I know you went through that. I know how hard it was. And look what I made you while you were suffering. Look what I created for you. Look at what I have for you because you went through this. I know. I know. Can you imagine? That's why Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17 that it's not worthy to be compared to suffering on earth, which is momentary. It won't last compared to the eternal weight of glory that we'll receive. We're going to receive gifts in heaven that nobody can ever take away. As Jesus said, where moth does not eat through it, rust does not decay it, and thieves can't touch it. This is what is waiting for us. It will be rewarded. Paul also tells us it's part and parcel of our holy calling. He said, "For which, in verse 8, me is prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. It's part and parcel of our holy calling. He would say to Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter would say, don't think it's strange, this suffering, this persecution, what you're going through. But remember that all of the brethren suffer. Paul also says that we have been given the grace in the calling of God to bear with it and even go beyond it. He says in verse 9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ before time began. Then he tells us that Jesus did not exempt himself from suffering, but he glorified suffering. And through it, abolished death, brought immortality to light. In other words, God brings purpose to our suffering. He will use our suffering. I give it to you, Lord. What do you want to do with this suffering? I'm pretty much deaf in my right ear now. So that means I cannot listen to other people's conversations which used to be like my favorite thing to do. (laughs) And when I talk to people, I have to look right at them and really listen. And it takes effort. Lord, how will you use the see, We tend to think of like, this is useless. You know, I could serve you so much better without this. Instead of presenting it to God and say, I give you even my suffering. To use... For your glory in whatever way you want, maybe it's just the compensation of grace, as God would say to Paul in first, um, second, second um, Corinthians chapter 12, verse eight and nine, that his grace is sufficient. Maybe it's just to see that outpouring of grace, that his grace is, is more than enough for this suffering. Suffering reveals the true disposition of others. I am sure that when Paul was free and a powerful force that jealous and Hermogenes at least feigned alignment or support of Paul. When you're popular, everybody likes you. When you got money, everybody likes you. However, when Paul was chained and in prison and condemned to death, the real nature of Phygelus and Hermogenes was revealed. Yet, at the same time, the true spiritual nature of Anusiphorus was also revealed. I think of David. It was when David was in exile, unpopular, King David, before he was king, when he was exiled and living outside of Israel, that it brought out the true nature of so many. Doeg, the Edomite, turned out to be a betrayer. Um, Nabal, the Carmelite, was churlish. It brought out the true nature. How they responded to David showed how they would respond to the son of David. And during that time, it was the, the... those who felt defeated, those who were in debt, and those who were discouraged, that came to David and became the mighty men. So in our suffering, the true nature of people is revealed. And we see with the Nisiphorus that he refreshed Paul often. He was not ashamed to associate with Paul. Rather, he sought him out diligently with intent and perseverance probably had to go through soldiers, scary soldiers, with swords, had to go through government, scary government with Nero being at the top of it, had to go through bureaucracy, questioning, probably interrogation, and then had to go to the the stinky, smelly prison, Mamertine prison. Maybe even had to climb down that ladder and be among those other prisoners not even knowing if he'd be lit out, to be able to refresh and find Paul. In suffering, your true friends are revealed, those who seek you out, in order to refresh and bless and encourage you. And these friends become all the more precious to you because they have sought you out. Finally, how did Paul handle suffering? Of note, again, is how he did not react to suffering. He didn't rail against his enemies. He didn't obsess over what phygellus and Hermogenes had done or were doing. He didn't try to hold on to his status. He didn't make demands on Timothy. But he did equate his suffering with Jesus. He fellowshiped and sought to understand the purpose and glory of Christ's suffering. Verse 8. As Paul would call it, in Philippians 3.10, the fellowship of his sufferings. Lord, you went through so much more than this. This is an inconvenience. But you went to a cross. He refused to feel any shame in his suffering. He remembered it was for the high calling of Jesus. Verse 12. We've got to take this stigma of shame out of suffering if god has allowed this then there's a glory in it there's a purpose in it and there will be a greater compensation in it he remembered his call and identity in christ preacher apostle and teacher of the gentiles verse 11 it is so important to locate your true identity in jesus christ when you're suffering. Because we can begin to identify ourselves as victims, as the sufferer. We need to locate, I'm a child of God and co-heir with Jesus Christ. This does not define me. It does not define who I am before God or who I am to my children or to my friends. This Will not and does not define me. I am defined by the Lord. He recognized that suffering is often because we've become a threat to the devil. It's because we've continued to follow the Lord. It's because we're obeying the directives of the Lord. It's because of our calling. I don't know one pastor's wife who hasn't felt ostracized socially physically or mentally at times, or suffered loss. It's just par for our calling in Jesus Christ, whether you're a pastor's wife or not. It's because ultimately we live in a fallen world that will one day be redeemed by Jesus and all suffering will be gone. When he says, Nothing on my holy mountain will hurt or bring sorrow. Paul also drew close to the Lord and grew in faith through suffering. Verse 12, I know who I have believed in, and I am fully persuaded. I know my Jesus. I know my Jesus. I know what he does, and I know what he doesn't do. I know what he likes, and I know what he doesn't like. I know what he says. Paul could recognize the voice of Jesus so clearly because he knew the one that he had believed in. And he was committed that all that was important to him in this world was important to the Lord. I think that's part of our problem. I think we think... My children are important to me, but you don't care if they're prodigals. And God's like, what? I created them. I care. Lord, you don't care. I mean, this is so little. You don't care if I have a new pair of shoes. So I'll just sneak to Nordstrom's rack when you're not around and get a pair for myself. God's like, what? I clothe the lilies of the field, which are going to die tomorrow. I care. I care. I care. Don't you think our problem is we think that God doesn't care about the things that we care about? Lord, you don't care that this person spoke meanly to me. Yes, I do. God cares. And so Paul would say, I know whom I have believed in, and I am fully persuaded that he's able to keep, to guard, to secure, to hold all that I have committed to him against that day. You know what our problem is? We don't give God enough. We're trying to hold on to things. We're trying to safeguard it. I remember when my one daughter came back to faith and I tried to be the Holy Spirit. I tried to hold her close to Jesus. Brian said, knock it off. I said, shut up, it was not pretty. But I just, I was so afraid we were gonna lose her. I didn't want to lose her. And I I've told you this before, but God gave me this vision. And in this vision, I saw this, this tube, like at a park, that kids climb up in to go down a slide. And he showed me my daughter climbing up this ladder, and as she did. Her face got more radiant. Her smile grew brighter. And the Lord said, Cheryl, I've surrounded her all around and she can only come up. I'm holding her. You let go. You stop it. He is able to keep that. He's able to hold it. He's able to do more with it than we can. If you want something really good this afternoon to watch or tomorrow or someday, listen to this. It's called The Pineapple Story. It's on YouTube. It's about this guy. He's Dutch, and he's got an accent. I I don't know what accent that was, but it wasn't Dutch. He's got this accent, and he's just telling this story. And at first, you're like, I can't believe Cheryl told me to watch this. But after that, you will be laughing. You'll be convicted. It's the best, the pineapple story. This Dutch guy telling it, don't look at the cartoon. you got to have the Dutch guy, the Dutch guy telling you, his own story. But his story is he tried to keep something instead of giving it to God. And when he was holding on to it, it was terrible. But when he gave it to God, everything turned around. He was a missionary um, somewhere. It's so good. You've got to watch it, though. But he committed all that was important to him, to the Lord, knowing that the Lord could keep what Paul could not. I think of Jim Elliott's famous quote, no man is a fool who gives up that which he cannot keep for that which he cannot lose. There are certain things we just can't keep or hold on to. But when we give it to God, it cannot be lost. Many times before Paul had been forced to leave those he loved, struggling fellowships like the Thessalonians and leaders, for the sake of the gospel, but he always committed them to the Lord. Acts 20, 32, when he's talking to um, the leaders in Ephesus on the beach of Miletus, and he tells them that after his departure, ravenous wolves will come in and try to steal from the flock. But he says to these leaders, and now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul knew what it was to commend, to commit, to put things into the Lord's trust. And because he knew God, he was fully persuaded, not one doubt, that God was able to hold Hold it and do better with that thing than Paul had done. He encouraged Timothy to hold the pattern of sound words. So in his suffering, instead of saying, I don't want to talk to you, I'm suffering, you're not. He didn't disassociate from Timothy. He encouraged others in his suffering. When my grandmother, she was dying and she was living with us, I was only like four But my mom and dad said, you could never walk in the room. Here she is in mortal pain without her saying an encouraging, uplifting word. And that's what Paul did. He told Timothy, hold the pattern of sound words. Don't forget what I've told you. But everything I've told you, hold them in faith. Believe them and in love. That's how people hear is when we believe it and we're loving them in the process. People will shut down if they don't feel love. Even in suffering, Paul was able to encourage Timothy to hold on to and not lose any of what he had learned from Paul. And Paul reminded Timothy of the glory of the gospel, that Timothy was now entrusted in verse 14. It's the story of God's Son who has saved us, abolished death, and brought life and immortality to light by his incarnation, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession for us. And even as God would keep everything that Timothy and Paul had committed to him, so they were, and we are, to keep, to treasure, to hold tightly to the gospel that God has entrusted to us this wondrous story that has been placed in our trust. So, bad news, good news. Bad news, at times, you are just going to have to suffer. Somehow it helps if you say, suffer. Suffering is inevitable. Suffering always involves pain and discomfort. Suffering will always be part of this present life in some form or other. And all of us, no matter what our age, gender, or occupation are, are subject to suffering. But the good news, and there's lots more good news than bad news, God brings purpose to our suffering. God compensates our suffering here with his comfort. God will overcompensate our suffering with glory and reward when we get to heaven. And God did not exempt himself from suffering and in so doing glorified, elevated and showed an honor in suffering. Amen. Let's pray. Father, suffering is hard. But we're thankful that you made a path through it, that you didn't just leave us in our suffering but you have promised one day to do away with all suffering and even in our suffering you draw close to us you intercede for us you use our suffering for glory and you speak to us father we pray that you would use and those of you who are going through something will you just present it to the lord i know all of you have some kind of suffering in your life just Maybe cup your hands, put it before the Lord. Lord, I give you this suffering. Lord, as a congregation, as a group of women, as friends, you know this suffering, you know this place. We give it to you because you are able to use it. You are able to bring glory to it. We give it to you. Knowing that someday we will no longer have it. It's just for this time. We give it to you. And now I want to also lift up, there's some of you who have been trying to keep something and you feel like you're losing it and you need to entrust it to the Lord. Let's, let's take that thing that you can't keep, that you're worried about, that you're trying to manage. I want you to give that to the Lord right now. Lord, here's this thing, we present it to you, that we can't keep. We've been trying so hard to keep by rules and regulations and words and, and, Lord, all sorts of antics and all sorts of um, activity. And we're tired, Lord, because we can't, we can't hold on to it. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, we commit this thing to you, knowing and being persuaded that you are able to keep that which we entrust to you better than we can. So, Father, we give you both our suffering and these things that we cannot keep. We give them to you because you said no one can grasp out of my hand. Thank you for your power, you who have abolished death and brought immortality to light by the gospel. In Jesus' name.